Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3. We are going to finish this chapter this morning, and I am so excited to dive into these verses with you. These verses remind me uh, of an event in my life when I was at Disneyland for what I remember to be my first time. I know I went earlier before I could remember anything. But I remember when I went to Disneyland for the very first time in my own memory, I remember specifically going to what has become my favorite ride at Disneyland, the Peter Pan ride. I loved the movie. I loved the the drawing, that painting, that big mural that's right there. I loved that. And I, I remember walking up to it, and you can see those ships going by, right? You can see the Jolly Roger. You can see, you can, you feel like you can touch it. You can get onto the onto the ride. And I remember walking up to the line and thinking, this isn't going to be so bad. And even in the line, I remember walking through those switchbacks, which I I just think the devil invented switchbacks, right? That's just the worst thing in the world. So I remember going, there's one point in that ride that you, you you make a left turn and you walk by the turnstile that's going to take you onto the ride and you walk by it and then, oh no, we still have 17 more switchbacks to go. They lied to me. I remember just feeling like, we're here, we made it, and then, nope, you have another hour to wait. I hated that. And then I thought through, from that moment forward, how much of my life is filled with those moments of waiting. Starts with the Peter Pan ride, rolls around every Christmas, right? Every Christmas, waiting. What's going to be in that box? What's in that present? I enlisted my daughter's help. I said, Chelsea, what, what makes it hard to wait for things in your life? What makes it hard? And she said this, well, you know, you feel like you're doing normal stuff in life while waiting for the one thing, and that one thing while you're waiting for it, you're doing the normal stuff, and it's just boring while you're waiting. (laughs) So that's so true. Like, you're waiting for this awesome thing, and the rest of life is boring because you want that thing. What makes it hard to wait in life? Can I ask you, what are you waiting for? I I want you to to think of this and bring this up in your heart and honestly ask God through the entirety of this sermon, God, what is it that I'm waiting for and how am I waiting for it? Maybe you're waiting for a job. We have prayed for many people in our church to be able to get jobs. And you're waiting, God, I I am praying. I've been doing all of the work I can do and I'm just waiting I'm waiting to hear back. I'm wondering, am I going to not have a job? Maybe you're waiting for Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright to show up in your life. You're just wondering, when when is God going to bring someone who is a godly man or a godly woman that I can befriend for the purpose of marriage down the road? And you're waiting. God, it, it seems like it should have happened by now, but you're still waiting. Maybe you're waiting for God to open your womb. God, I feel like, feel like we should have had kids by now. And you look around at all the other couples having kids. You see our children's ministry room just flourishing with children. You're, you're waiting. God, why aren't you giving this to me now? What, what do I have to do? Is there, is there something wrong? And in the, in the waiting, the pressures from outside influences, the expectations that we have about how life is supposed to be, the difficulties the trials, the hardships, all of those things make waiting so difficult. Maybe you are married, but you're waiting for your marriage to be good. 
waiting for reconciliation to happen. I don't know what the reason that you have for waiting is this morning, but I know that all of us are waiting for something. So, as we turn to the end of the book of Ruth, I know that these verses are for you and for me in our waiting. This is why I'm so glad we've, we've slowed down in this book. Could have preached all of chapter 3 in one sermon, but we would miss the profound nature of what Naomi's about to say because of her hope in God. So let's read this together, Ruth chapter 3. I want to read the whole chapter just to give us the final context because once we're done with our sermon this morning, we are leaving chapter 3 and moving into chapter 4. So let's start in verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, rest for you, that I may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? Behold, he's winnowing barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, anoint yourself, put on your best clothes, go down to the threshing floor, but don't make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down, and then he will tell you what you shall do. And she said to her, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor. She did all according to her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled, and he bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering, spread your wings over your maid, for you are a kinsman redeemer. Then he said, May you be blessed to the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, because my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now, it's true that I'm a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. So remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. So lodge here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And again, he said, give me the cloak that's on you and hold it. So she held it out. He measured six measures of barley and laid it on her and she went into the city. And she came to her mother-in-law. She said, how did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. And Ruth said, these six measures of barley he gave to me because he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out because the man will not rest until he has settled it today. Father, I pray that you would give us understanding, that you would comfort our hearts, that you would encourage us in the waiting, that you would give us hope in the moments of pressure and anxiety and worry and wonder. God, grant us the same foundation, undergirding that Naomi has in these verses to say we can wait. Feelings will not enable us to wait. 
We need more than emotions. We need truth. We need something outside of ourselves to cling to. We need an anchor for our souls in the midst of our waiting. And so I pray this morning that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things from your law and reveal to us what that anchor is for our souls so that we can wait well and give you glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Ruth chapter 3, verses 14, all the way down through verse 18 is the section that we're going to be looking at this morning. And I just, I wanted to read the whole section and I want to just give one summary statement of what's happened. Remember back at the beginning of the chapter, Naomi had said, we have a plan. God is a sovereign God and in his sovereignty, he's enabled us to have this man named Boaz who is a relative. There's no obligation here. He doesn't have to redeem you, but maybe he will redeem you. Maybe you can be married. You've already been married before, Ruth, but your husband died. You were unable to have children in that first marriage but maybe you can have security. So that's why she says to Ruth, go with this crazy plan, which we spent two weeks talking about what this plan looks like. Naomi believes, just I want to remind us, she believes in the sovereignty of God, and that is why she's doing what she's doing. So many times people think the sovereignty of God takes away our human responsibility, but it actually does the exact opposite. If God is sovereign, that doesn't stifle our actions. That stimulates our actions. It does not take us away from acting. It moves us towards acting. It energizes us. We know God's working, so we're going to work too. We could say it this way. God's sovereignty doesn't freeze us with a Z. God's sovereignty frees us with an S to go act, to go work. And so she says, I've got this crazy plan. I don't want you just to put a sticky note on his Nalgene water bottle. Hey, can we talk tonight? Because I've got an idea. I want you to make this happen. And maybe Naomi's even thinking, Ruth, he might say no. He's not obligated to do anything. He's not obligated to ask. And as you go to ask him this question, he's not obligated to ask and say, can I, can I meet these needs? He's not obligated to do anything. So maybe... That's another reason why Naomi said, let's do this at night. Because Ruth, if he says no to you, which is a very real possibility that he will not marry you, I don't want you to be rejected in front of people. I want you to be secure and safe. So she comes up with this crazy plan, which in essence is Ruth saying to Boaz, I would like you to marry me. I am marryable. Remember, she had been mourning the death of her husband. So maybe this is her saying, by the way, I'm not mourning my husband's death anymore. I can be married. We know that she's younger than Boaz. So maybe Boaz just thought, there's no way she would want me. In fact, he kind of says that. I'm surprised you came after me instead of one of these younger guys. So she's saying, look, Boaz, I know that you may not have thought I would want you, but I do. And I want you to take care of me. But more than that, I want you to take care of my mother-in-law. And then we talked about this last week. There's no obligation. This is love without obligation, and this is love without an exit strategy. This is, this is true covenant-keeping love. I love you, not because of your appearance, not because of what you have to offer me. I will place my love upon you, and I have no exit strategy for that love. So that leads us to verse 14. We're going to split this up into just two main sections. We're going to look at the character of Boaz and the character of Ruth and Naomi. So the character of Boaz, chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Ruth lays at his feet until morning. I just, I really want more detail about that. What is happening? Because we know midnight was when this all went down. So we've got hours before 
what is going to come up next actually happens. What's, are they talking? She's lying down at his feet. He had said very purely at the end of verse 13, lie down until morning. The better translation is lodge here because there's a translation, there's a word in Hebrew that means lay with me. And if you say that, you're asking for some uh, sexual things to be going on. And he says, no, we're not talking about that. Uh, Lodge with me. Stay here. Remain with me. Don't lay with me. Lodge with me. He's pure. He's protecting her. We even see that in verse 15, 14 and 15, about uh, taking care of her, put your cloak on, go before anybody can see you. But what was happening that evening? Were they talking? Were they just super excited about the plans? Were they talking about the plans? Were they talking about that near relative that's actually a closer relative that might undo the whole operation? We don't know. The text doesn't say, but I look forward to talking with Boaz and Ruth in heaven one day to figure out what, what happened after that conversation. But he says, middle of verse 14, to Ruth, let it not be known that you came here to the threshing floor. Again, threshing floor is a place where there was a lot of immoral activity going on. Uh, Prostitution was happening. So uh, Ruth, I don't want anybody to get an idea negatively about your character. You have an amazing reputation. You're a woman of excellence. So let's get you out of here before anybody can see you. It's not that she had done anything wrong. He wants to make sure that nobody thinks that she had done anything wrong. But she cannot leave without a generous gift being given to her and to her mother-in-law, which is always the case with Boaz. You can't leave until I give you food. And remember the first time this happened, you can't leave until I give you food and extra food and a doggy bag. You can't leave until I give you all of this stuff. So, verse 15, give me the cloak that's on you. Again, that word cloak, verse 15, is the better translation. It's the exact same word in Hebrew in verse 3, best clothes, but it's cloak. It's your outer garment. It's not that she was dressing up all pretty. It's you had a big, huge outer garment that's around you. It's a cloak. Hold it so I can pour some barley in. And it says, I'm going to give you, he measures out six measures of barley. Now, the Hebrew word for six measures is a difficult word. There's actually some dispute as to what this amounts to. The good news is there's only two options as to what this could amount to. One is 500 pounds of barley, and one is 50 pounds of barley. I'm going to go with 50 pounds of barley because 500 won't fit in a cloak, and Ruth is a very strong woman, but she can't carry 500 pounds. (laughs) So about 50 pounds of barley in her cloak on her she's going to take home. There's one last thing that we need to mention. Uh, my Bible actually has a little number next to the word she at the end of verse 15. I don't know if your Bibles have that. Um, We understand the text of Scripture based off of going back to old texts, old documents of Scripture, and they date way, way back, 300, 400 B.C. that we get these manuscripts from. The older that they are, the likelier they are to be identical to what was originally said. So the older the manuscript is, the less time there is for somebody to tamper with it, to put some added words into it, or take things out. So we want old manuscripts to tell us what the text was actually saying. The oldest manuscripts that we have of the book of Ruth does not have a feminine here for she, but a masculine for he. He went into the city. And not only because we believe in the older texts of Scripture, they are the ones that help us identify what actually is in the Word of God, um, but also because of the context He says, you go home, and I'm going to the city right now to get this thing done. We know he is booking it to the gates because he wants to make sure I can marry Ruth today. I'm figuring this out today. As the Lord lives today, I will redeem you. 
Remember, he said that in verse 13. Remain this night. When morning comes, I'm making this decision. This is happening. So he rushes into the city, and that's going to be important uh, come the end of this chapter. She comes to her mother-in-law. What must Naomi have been doing that night? I don't think she slept much that night. Pacing around. I'm sure there's second guessing in her mind. Right as Ruth leaves and she thinks, we got this in the bag. I think this this is going to work out well. Then she realizes, what have I just done? What have I just told my daughter-in-law to do? There's so many ways that this could go bad. The easiest way that this could go bad is just Boaz says no. But there are so many things that could go wrong. She could get robbed on the way there. Remember, we are in the days of the judges. Nothing good is happening in these days. She could be kidnapped. She could be killed. She could be raped. There are so many things that could go wrong on her way there, when she's there, or on her way back. So Naomi's wondering, is she okay? What's going on? I don't think that she's sleeping a wink that night. She's nervously pacing around. And when Ruth opens the door to their little home, she rushes in, verse 16, and says, my Bible says, how did it go, my daughter? How did it go, my daughter? Literally, she says the exact same Hebrew words that Boaz said when Ruth woke him up in verse 9. Who are you? That's literally the same Hebrew words. Who are you? Boaz said that just wondering, who are you? I don't know who you are. It's dark. Remember, he knew that it was a woman. Who, who are you? What, what woman are you? But Naomi asks the exact same words. It's a question of identity. Who are you? Whose are you? Are you the future Mrs. Boaz? Who are you? My Bible says, how did it go, my daughter? She's asking, tell me about everything, but she's wanting to get to, did our plan work? Who are you? And she tells Naomi all that the man had done for her. All that he had done. All that he had done. It's not, she told her mother-in-law how dreamy his eyes were by the full moon light. No. It's back to his character. We've talked several times about marriage and about character and about biblical manhood and womanhood, but as we finish out chapter 3, this is a good place to put one final exclamation point on that. Because Ruth says, I want to tell you what this man is. I want you to, to see his character. We've, we've talked many times before about how the Bible really has no model whatsoever. There is no model in the Bible about dating or how to find a spouse. There's no model. There's principles. The main two principles in how to find a spouse are conversion and character. If you claim the name of Christ, profess to be a believer, you are called to marry a believer, and there would really be no reason why you wouldn't want to marry a believer because if you married a non-believer, your hearts and minds would be diametrically opposed. Ultimately, at the foundational level, we talked about this a couple Wednesday nights ago, you would be pursuing opposite affections. So conversion, but character. Character, you get to choose. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. You get to find her. You get to choose. So character comes in. You get to find out what they are like, who they are, how they live their lives, what their priorities are. One of the things that's not on that list is compatibility. Um, That's a big buzzword in our day and age. Are you guys compatible? If, If you love God and you have godly character, then you can be married to anybody of the opposite sex who loves God and has godly character. 
You can make that work. Now, you get to choose, but we're so stuck on compatibility. And I love the book of Ruth because look at the differences between Ruth and Boaz. Ruth is a Moabite woman. Boaz is an Israelite man. We've got a Chemosh worshiper. We've got a Yahweh worshiper. We've got a rich person and a poor person, a business owner and a migrant worker, a single person and a person who's already been married, someone who's experienced the death of the spouse and somebody who hasn't, financially independent, living day to day off the generosity of others. These people are completely different and older versus younger. So what's going to make this work out? It's character. It's character. So I want to... Just go back again, exclamation point on everything we've talked about, about marriage and character. We have a beautiful picture of biblical, godly manhood in who Boaz is. So I'm going to give you seven qualities. We're going to go through very quickly, but seven qualities that if you are looking for a man to marry, these are the ones you should be looking for. If you are looking as a man to be married, this is who you should be. If you are already married as a man, you should be becoming these things more and more. If you are married to a man, you should be encouraging him in these things. If you're not married, but you know people who are, you should champion them and encourage them. There's just, there's no way that these seven qualities can't apply to each and every one of us. And Boaz characterizes all these. Number one, spirituality. Back in chapter two, Boaz greets all of his workers by saying, blessed, uh, may you be blessed in the Lord. Not just shalom, peace be with you, but may you be blessed by Yahweh. He is a lover of Yahweh. Does the person that you are talking to, that you are befriending, maybe for the purpose of marriage, do they talk about Jesus? Do they love Jesus? Do they desire to please Jesus? Do they love him more than anything in the world? Spirituality. Number two, humility. I love this. Boaz is really kind of shocked. He was hoping that Ruth would ask what she's asking, but he is shocked that she does because he has an amazing view of himself, which is, I don't know if anybody would want to marry me. I'm old. I mean, he's financially independent, but he's just, I'm going to pursue God, I'm going to love God, and I don't expect anything. He's not looking at Ruth going, man, aren't you the luckiest woman alive? Husbands, if you are married to a woman, you married up, right? (laughs) If you're married to a woman, you might have your PhD in everything imaginable, but you still married up because she's a woman and you're not. (laughs) And Boaz has a humble perspective of himself. This could have gone so much differently in this text. She says, will you marry me? And he goes, well, of course. I mean, I have a thousand other options and I'll go figure those women out. And maybe, I mean, he could have said so many different things, but he's shocked that she would choose him. He has utter humility. Number three, priority. So we've got spirituality, humility, priority. On the top of Boaz's list of somebody to marry is that Ruth is a woman of known character. He wants to make sure she has godly character. He has asked about her in the city, do you know something about her reputation that I don't know? This tells me that Boaz knows love is blind, And so he can't fully see. He's maybe thinking, man, I'd love to marry her, but I don't know everything there is to know, and I know love is blind, and so do you see anything? And they are all saying she is a woman of excellence. We never see anything in this passage, in this text, in this book, that says Ruth is beautiful and Boaz is handsome. Nothing about their physical appearance. It's character. 
He knows that she's the Proverbs 31 woman, and Proverbs hasn't even been written yet, but he knows that. (laughs) Number four, honesty. He's a man of integrity. He knows that there is another closer relative. There are so many reasons that I would have said in that moment, forget it, you snooze, you lose, we're going to get married. Let's run away. But he says, before we do this, we need to do everything above board here. And there's another person that has a legal right to marry you before I do, so we have to ask him. Number five, accountability. Accountability. We're going to ask at the gate, and if he redeems you, then let him do that. Find somebody and become somebody who is willing to set aside personal feelings in order to do what is right. Listen to this. Boaz was willing to remain single and lose the love of his life rather than disobey the word of God. That's the person that you want to find. Number six, purity. We already talked about this. He says lodge here. Even in his words, he's precise to make sure there's purity. Number seven, generosity. Not only with purity, with her reputation, but in generosity, don't come home uh, empty-handed. Don't go home empty-handed. Just constantly giving and giving and giving. Those are seven qualities that husbands we need to, to be, to pursue. Wives, encourage us, champion us in those things. Women, if you're looking to be married, this is the guy you're looking for. Men, if you're looking to be married, this is the guy that you want to be. We see the character of Boaz on display. That leads us to point number two, the character of Ruth and Naomi. This is verses 17 and 18. After Ruth says everything that Boaz had done for her, verse 17, she says, These six measures of barley he gave to me, because he said, Do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. This is where we need sanctified imagination. We need to go back into this house. The sun is just now rising. The smells of the city are are around us. The, The dust is starting to be kicked up by people walking through the streets. We need to be there for this moment because when Ruth says, he gave me this barley because he said to me he doesn't want you to go empty-handed, I think something profound occurs. And we need to see it in Naomi's eyes. We need to hear it in her voice as she's about to speak to Ruth. I think that when Ruth says these words, I think Naomi starts tearing up and can't even compose herself to speak what she's about to speak. And the reason why is Boaz chose his words very specifically. He says to Ruth, make sure that you tell your mom, your mother-in-law, I don't want her ever to go empty. My Bible says empty-handed. Go back to chapter 1, verse 21. And remember, this is a small little town. Everybody knows everything that's going on. When Naomi had come back from Moab, she was greeted by all of the townspeople, and she gave them a speech about what had happened. And she says in verse 21, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back what? Empty. The Lord's brought me back empty. That phrase, that word, had made its way to Boaz. And Boaz says in chapter 3, verse 17, tell your mother-in-law she's never going to be empty again. She's never going to be empty. I want her to know that God might have given her bitter circumstances, and he did and they were difficult, and she was right in saying that. She never didn't trust God. She trusted him. She's clinging to hope, but she's struggling. 
And Boaz says, oh, I want you to tell your mother-in-law. She's never going to go empty again. She's never going to go empty again. And the way in which she is encouraged in that area is six measures of barley. Just a little, a little thing. Here, 50 pounds, here you go. A kind, small gesture of love. And behind it is a promise. I'm going to be used by God so that you will never go empty. Has God reminded you, just even this last week, with 50 pounds of barley, so to speak, in your life, in your lap, has God reminded you this week, you're not going to go empty-handed? I'm going to take care of you. It doesn't have to be something huge, something big. It can be. Like last week, we were able to partake of communion. That is an enormous place where God himself is saying, you're never going to go empty-handed. I'm always going to be with you. I will always care for you. But, But it's little things. It's little things. A relationship with somebody where you're talking and you realize God is working through them, speaking to you, encouraging your heart, and you're not going to go without. God's going to take care of you, and he's never going to leave you or forsake you. Naomi says, wait, verse 18, because of Boaz's character and because of this amazing token of kindness, she tells Ruth, wait. Literally in Hebrew, sit still, just sit still. There's nothing left for us to do. And at this point, I say, what? Like, no way am I waiting we're wondering what's going to happen with Boaz at the gate. And Naomi says, we're done. We can just sit down. Let's just enjoy the rest of the morning and just see what happens. This is where I say, I'm pacing around. I'm looking out the window. I'm texting the people that I know. What is going on? Does anybody see Boaz? But she says, wait. Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest until he has settled it today. Wait, my daughter, until you know how everything falls out. She even uses the language of just let it, let it happen. It'll fall where it falls. God's in control. We've done what we're supposed to do. Let it happen. And he's going to finish it. He will not rest until literally he has finished everything. He won't rest until he has finished it all. That's another beautiful picture of what a husband's supposed to be, right? Just let him do everything. Take it all, finish it all, and we get to enjoy the the fruit of his labors. But she says to Ruth, wait. Margaret Thatcher, who was the former prime minister of England, once said, I am extremely patient, provided I get my own way in the end. (laughs) (laughs) And honestly, if there's ever a a situation in which you have to wait, this is the situation because she literally says, he's going to settle it today. This This is my kind of waiting We have to wait, not even 24 hours. It'll happen, so just wait, just rest. But you have to surrender everything. Stay put, stay calm, just sit still. It's out of our hands, and we don't need to worry about it. But here's the key. She has has told Ruth that she can wait. Why can Ruth wait? Ruth can wait because Boaz will not wait. Ruth can rest because Boaz is never going to rest until this thing happens. Ruth can sit still because Boaz is doing anything but sitting still. That's why going back up to the end of verse 15, he goes into the city. He's working and she sees him working. As they part ways, she's going home to rest and he's going to the city to work. So she can rest. 
she can rest. Naomi, in her fullest expression thus far in this book of trust in God's providence, with optimism and with hope, no longer Mara, she says, we can wait. God is a good God. He's provided. Notice how every single chapter has ended with barley. End of chapter 1, there's a barley harvest. End of chapter 2, there's barley harvest. End of chapter 3, barley's been given to Naomi. And notice how the end of every chapter goes back to Naomi. This book is called Ruth, but it's all about Naomi. It's all about where's Naomi? How's Naomi doing? And this chapter is where she gets it. God has not forgotten me. It felt like he did. I was struggling with whether he did or not, but I know now he has not forgotten me. That's why we can sit back and rest because this is all in his sovereign hands. God has brought us this far and maybe he will take us all the way home to hope and provision. And I think all throughout this book, she's been struggling with that, but now she says, not maybe, but for sure, he's got this. So again, I ask the question, what are you waiting for? What is it that you're waiting for? Maybe you're waiting for a family member to be healed. You're wondering, you've been praying for a long time. God, are you going to work in their life to heal them? Maybe you're waiting for a feud in your family to go away. I don't know what it is, but I know all of us are waiting for something. And I, I just want to let God's word wash over our souls right now. Naomi can wait because she knows God is a sovereign God. He's on his throne. He's a good God. Remember, she said that even in her distress in chapter one, before she says, call me bitter, God's given me bitter circumstances, she had told Orpah and Ruth, hey, you guys go and I'm going to pray that God would give you hesed. I'm going to pray that God would give you goodness and kindness and that, that mercy with that love with no exit strategy. I'm going to be praying that for you because I know God gives that. She didn't abandon God. And even when she felt abandoned by him, she says, I know he's here. This has been difficult, but I trust him. But she struggled with hope and here, Her struggle is gone. I can trust. Why? Because God is sovereign. God is good. So what I want to do is I want to just read. You can write these references down. We're not going to look them up because we don't have time. I want to just read a number of passages that deal with waiting and let the word of God wash over your hearts, wash over your souls, wash over your minds. And in whatever you're waiting, let these already begin applying to your situation, knowing the character of God. Psalm chapter 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Psalm 37, verse 9. Evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. There's hope coming. Psalm 37, verse 7. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. Don't fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. No, wait and rest in the Lord. Psalm 37, verse 34, wait for the Lord, keep his way. He will exalt you and you will inherit the land. Psalm 62, verse 5, wait my soul in silence for God alone, for my hope is from him. Sometimes the waiting is in silence. Sometimes the waiting is in complete silence. And sometimes, if we're honest, we can misinterpret the silence of God in our situations as the absence of God. He's not absent. He may be silent, but he is not absent. Psalm 69, verses 3 and 6. I am weary with crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for God. This does not mean waiting is easy. That verse tells us sometimes you are crying so much that that is all you do, but you're still waiting. 
Psalm 130 is an amazing psalm. We're going to actually sing it. Um, just You can read that one on your own time. We'll sing it at the end of our service. Psalm 147, verse 11. The Lord favors those who fear him, those who wait for his loving kindness. Psalm 46.10, you know that one. Cease striving, wait, be still, and know that I am God. You can wait because you know he's God. You're not. We get anxious because we think we're God. We think we have to keep it all under control and all together. Psalm 25.3, indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. No one who waits upon the Lord will ever be put to shame. He will not let you go empty-handed. He will not ultimately leave you. There, be, there might be moments where he says, you're going to have to go without for now, but I'm still with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you, even when you can't see me, right? Psalm 23, in the valley of the shadow of death, literally the valley of deepest darkness, I can't see anything I don't fear because God's with me. I can't see him, can't even feel his presence, but I know he's with me. Psalm 52, verse 9, I will give thanks forever to you because you have done it, and I will wait on your name because it is good. Psalm 69, 6, may those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, Lord of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. Isaiah 49, verse 23, kings will be your guardians, the princes, your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth. They'll lick the dust of your feet, and you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hopefully wait for me, hopefully wait, will never be put to shame. Finally, Isaiah chapter 40. Verses 27 through 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? I think that's what Naomi is struggling with. Why, do you, why, why are you far from me? Why is the justice escaping the notice of God? My way is hidden from him. And Isaiah says, and you know these verses. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. As one of my Bible professors once said, your helplessness tempts God's om omnipotence. Your utter hopelessness and helplessness makes God say, I want to help that. That's why he says, if you're weary, he's going to give you strength. If you lack power, he's going to give it to you. And you know the end of it. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and never become weary. How can we wait? What should we do in the waiting? I think one of the things that you should always do in the waiting is fight to sing. And that's why we're going to end our service with a couple more songs than we would normally do because I want us to sing these promises. I'm going to wait for you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to cling to your sovereign goodness. But brothers and sisters, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you can sit still, you can stand still, you can be still because your Redeemer does not sit still. He does not stand still and he will not be still. Even at this very moment, listen to what Jesus is unceasingly doing right now for you. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, he is interceding for you. He's praying for you. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, he's working for you. He's working with you. Romans 8, 28, he is arranging all things together for his good purposes on behalf of believers. So we, like Ruth, come helpless before the feet of our Redeemer. And we ask him, and he says, all that you have asked, I will do for you. And just like Naomi said about Boaz, 
Jesus will not rest until it is finished. The reality of the book of Ruth, the purpose of the book of Ruth, is not to get you to do anything. This is not a book saying, so now go and do this, now go and do this. This isn't a book getting you to do something. It's a book getting you to realize something. And if you realize it, if you truly realize what this book is saying, then that will change everything that you do. This isn't about go do something. This is about realize a truth about who God is. And if you realize that truly, correctly, in your heart of hearts, it will change everything that you do. God is sovereign. He is on his throne. And as we wait and as we wonder and as we worry and as we try to find some anchor for our souls, we see him high and exalted, sitting on his throne, ruling with kindness and goodness. And we realize that a throne occupied by a resurrected Savior makes the best anchor for a weary but waiting soul. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And what we want to do in response to it now is sing. In whatever form of waiting we would find ourselves, we want to wait well. And we want to anchor ourselves in the character of our amazing God, high and lifted up on his throne. Your sovereignty is the only anchor that will give comfort to a weary and waiting soul. So God, give us that comfort even now as we sing. In the name of Christ we pray.